Our scripture lesson tonight comes from the very first chapter uh, of the gospel, the good news, according to Mark. And we're going to be working through chapters 1 and 2 of the gospel of Mark tonight as we look at the very places that Jesus walked. Let's share in God's good word together. Jesus went to Galilee preaching the message of God. Time's up. God's kingdom is here. Change your life and believe the message. Passing along the beach of Lake Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew net fishing. Fishing was their regular work. Jesus said to them, come with me. I'll make you a new kind of fisherman out of you. I'll show you how to catch men and women instead of perch and bass. They didn't ask questions. They dropped their nets and followed. A dozen yards or so down the beach, he saw the brothers James and John, Zebedee's sons. They were in the boat, mending their fish nets. Right off, he made the same offer. Immediately, they left their father Zebedee, the boat, and the hired hands, and followed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. According to the Gospel of Mark, God is passionate to save us. And the writer doesn't waste a word or a minute getting to the action of God's saving acts through Jesus Christ. Now, we think of salvation in one way here in the West, but in Jesus' day, when he talked about salvation, he meant it. To save comes from the Greek word that would literally mean to heal or to be made whole. It's the Greek word sozo. Salvation was a much broader concept that brought life and healing and wholeness in this life and the next. The salvation that Jesus brings is for all people, for all time, including right now, right here, in all kinds of different situations. If you have your sermon notes, I invite you to take them out. We are in week two of our sermon series on the footprints of Jesus, walking in the footprints of Jesus. That's what we want to do, where the things of God that um, Jesus imprinted into the world. We want those imprinted on our soul. Uh, tonight's sermon is entitled Breaking and Entering. Uh, we're going to get to a part where people were actually breaking and entering into Jesus' house. But you know, a life with Christ is always about breaking and entering, isn't it? That we are brokenhearted and we enter into God's comfort. We have a break in a relationship and we need to enter into forgiveness and reconciliation. We are breaking up with and through the world and we begin to enter into the kingdom of heaven in this life and the next breaking and entering we'll be looking for those themes throughout the first few chapters of mark tonight as a way of introduction last week we learned this that the land is the fifth gospel will you say that with me the land is the fifth gospel we learn a lot about jesus in matthew mark luke and john but it's really hard to get that in our minds without sort of knowing the lay of the land how does it lay out where is jesus where is he going how far is that from jerusalem those sorts of things but while um, Chantel and i were in the holy land for 12 days and we want to share much of that with you I also need to be really upfront, and that is that the goal here tonight and always at Acts 2 is not to know about Jesus. That's your first blank there. The goal is not to know about Jesus. I mean, that can be helpful, but the goal is to know Jesus, to be in a relationship with Jesus. Now, sometimes knowing about him helps you be in that relationship, but we can never um, mix up the, the path for the actual goal. And the goal is to know Jesus, to be in relationship with him, to learn what he sounds like, and, and to visit with him, and to follow him, and to live for him. 
And this knowing includes submitting ourselves to the stories that we find in the Bible. Where, where are we when we read a story in the Bible? Who are you in that story? Which character are you in? What season are you in at the moment? I love the way Eugene Peterson put it, and I hope you'll read it with me. God is here right now and on our side, actively seeking to help us in the ways we most need help. Do you believe that? That is who God is. God is here right now and on your side, on our side, on all of his children's side, actively seeking to help us in the ways that we most need help. And that may be very different from the person sitting next to you. We're not to do that all in the same way. The goal is here. The God is here right now. And the goal is to receive that help from Jesus tonight. God is with us. God wants to help us. And one of the ways that we hear from God is by looking to God's word that is new and fresh Every time we come to it, if we will have eyes to, to see and ears to hear. So Mark starts like this. It's a very short uh, gospel. You can read it in about 40 minutes front to back. It's about 16 chapters. It goes very, very fast. So it starts like this in chapter 1. John the baptizer, uh, Jesus' cousin, appeared in the wild, preaching a baptism of life change that leads to forgiveness of sins. People thronged to him from Judea, and that's the area right around Jerusalem, and Jerusalem, which is the city on the other side of the mountains. And as they confessed their sins, uh, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, which runs from uh, roughly the Lake of Galilee in the north all the way down to the Dead Sea in the south. And, and that changed their life. John wore a camel hair habit, and he tied uh, at the waist with a leather belt, and he ate locust and wild field honey. Because, friends, that's about all there is out there in the desert. There's not much out there. And as John preached, he said this, Listen up, friends. The real action comes next. The star in this drama to whom I'm a mere stagehand, John says, will change your life. He's referring to Jesus, of course. He says, I'm baptizing you here in the river, turning your old life in for a kingdom life. His baptism, meaning Jesus' baptism, is a holy baptism by the Holy Spirit. And that will change you from the inside out. Friends, we're going to offer you the ability to receive the Holy Spirit tonight, to receive um, healing tonight in Jesus' name. And that is something that changes us from the inside out, from the inside out. So John the Baptist, he breaks away from the religious life of Jerusalem, which is on one side of the mountains. And so last week we learned a little bit about Pharisees um, who believed in the resurrection uh, and they, they were teachers of the law and, and then they had, uh, had to teach about you know, sort of these new laws on top of the old laws. And so how exactly how far could you walk your donkey on a Sabbath? When could you light a fire? When you could do all these things? The Pharisees knew everything about everything. They were a very particular kind of lawyer. And that sat over and against the Sadducees that did not believe in the resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. That's how you remember it. And um, they were old school. They were uh, aristocracy. They were wealthy. They were with the ruling class. They often worked with the political powers that would be. And they only looked at what the scripture said. And so if the scriptures that they had didn't say it, then they didn't fool with it. The Pharisees, though, would try to fill in the gaps about what the scriptures didn't say. And so you had these two sorts of groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they were always, you know, really a problem for Jesus. Now, there's a third group known as the Essenes. Um, and so John breaks away from the Pharisees and the Sadducees of Jerusalem, and he entered, that's your next blank there, he entered the separated life with the Essenes in the desert, which is roughly eight miles south of Jericho. Uh, I want to show it to you. Um, it looks basically like this. Uh, you can go today. This is on the road between Jerusalem um, and where uh, John the Baptist is believed to have lived, and people still live out there. 
uh, Bedouins uh, raising some goats, looks like that. When you actually get down to Qumran, which is eight miles south of Jericho, this is sort of what you see as you look back into the Judean desert. If you were to look the other way, um, you'll see the Dead Sea. I mean, there is nothing there. And so you actually see the Dead Sea, and those are the mountains on the Jordan side. Um, and the other mountains that you see here uh, are facing Jerusalem. Now, if you look, that's Chantel, my wife, and I, uh, there at Qumran. If you look back up over my, uh, over my right shoulder there, uh, you can see a cave um, up at the top. So if you go all the way up there, you're going to that cave. In that cave, in 1947, uh, they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And that's where they found them. And the Dead Sea Scrolls, this is a really important find, um, because um, what they found in the Dead Sea Scrolls matched the scriptures beautifully perfectly like wow we couldn't believe how closely it it just it just matched right up and so um, they've been excavating uh, this area uh, really since that time Um, and some of the uh, things around there uh, dated back all the way to 150 years before the birth of christ and so this is a very very old area um, and you can see the caves up in uh, the mountains it's like how did they even get up there um, but this is where the Essenes would go and they would live. You can see there's, you know, there's probably a five, six-story drop from here down uh, to this little road. Um, and you, as you go around uh, the, that southern area by the Dead Sea, you see these caves just kind of pop up place to place. And that's where the Essenes lived. They hid out from the Romans until about 68 A.D. Um, and survived out there. Uh, they were trying to live for God uh, in very uh, ascetic ways, isolated ways away from the world um, to gain their soul. And so uh, John the Baptist is in this area and he's preaching to people and he's, he's basically saying, look, I'm, I'm baptizing you with water whenever we can find some. And so they would go up uh, to the Jordan River to do that. But then he says, Jesus is going to come and he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit, God's own spirit. And that changes you, not from the outside. They would have these mikvahs, uh, these little ritual baths where you had seven steps down and you'd come in and then they would have seven steps up. And that would symbolize that you were made new, that you were washed clean. And and John the Baptist said, yes, this is good, right, for, for public health, of course. But the real change comes from the inside out when the baptism of the Holy Spirit comes to you and Jesus is about to offer that. So this is the, the southern area. Now, if you were to go up north, uh, the, the story continues uh, in Mark 1, 9. It says, at this time, Jesus came from Nazareth in where? Galilee, okay? Now, I want to show you what that looks like. It looks very different than where John was hanging out. There are pretty flowers, um, lots of water. I mean, look how beautiful this is. I mean, when you think of Jesus where he hangs out, hangs out this is not what you think of. But that's exactly uh, where Jesus lived from the time he was 30 to 33. Now, this is what a riverbed looks like. What's interesting is that the riverbeds are almost always dry, but there's always water because north of here is Mount Hermon. Uh, It has snow on it pretty much 365 days a year. Uh, It's in Syria. That snow melts, percolates through the volcanic rock, and comes out not in the riverbed but underneath it, straight out of the rock. It's the craziest thing. You look at it, and there's beautiful water just pouring out of the rock, not because of rainfall, but because of um, the watershed from the snow melt from Mount Hermon um, up north. It's just absolutely beautiful and cold uh, if you stick your feet in it, which we did. Uh, it was really refreshing and beautiful. And this is where Jesus hung out. I mean, he loved to be up here. This is where he would teach. And so a lot of people lived up here in that area. Uh, you know, if you had a choice between this and the desert pictures, where would you live? I mean, Jesus is is up here is a good place had lots of uh, commerce to it people were um, you know selling and and moving and living it was kind of the place to be so Jesus comes from Galilee it's not a desert 
John the Baptist and Jesus. Uh, and so what they do is they actually meet in the middle. Um, Galilee is up at the top um, and up here. So you see the hometown of Jesus, Capernaum. And so all of this up here uh, is the Galilee, okay, where all that pretty stuff is. And then out of the Lake of Galilee uh, or the Sea of Galilee uh, or the Sea of Tiberias, all those are names for the same place, and comes down the Jordan River until you get to about eight miles south of Jericho where John the Baptist was. So when it came time for Jesus' baptism, I don't know how they did this, but it's kind of like our Turner Turnpike. They met right there at Stroud. Um, you know, that would be what it is for us right there in the middle. Um, they're meeting at the McDonald's there, of course, where everybody meets. Um, but that's, that's basically what happened. So I want to, uh, in Mark 1, uh, 9 to 11, we, we find this story. At this time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So they had to, you know, find a spot to meet. And the moment he came out of the water, he saw the sky split open, break open, and God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit that John was talking about earlier, it looked like a dove, came down on him along with the Spirit, came a voice that says, you are my son, the chosen one, marked by my love, pride of my life. And so, um, unfortunately, this area is not nearly as pretty. That's the Jordan River. That's where Jesus, uh, they believe, was baptized. Uh, it's pretty rugged. Um, and today it's even more rugged because there's landmines on sort of either side of the road that gets you there uh, from all the wars that have been. Uh, there's Chantel and I. But we wanted to show you, uh, there's nothing pretty about the Jordan River uh, in this spot. I mean, once you get down from the Galilee, uh, all those beautiful spring waters are pretty murky. Uh, it moves a little, but not a lot. Um, it, it's kind of like uh, most of the creeks around here. Um, you know, just going down to the river. That's what it would look like. Uh, but there's something beautiful about it because the Spirit does come there. Um, and so there are these little mosaics and places where people gather even to this day, uh, come to be baptized, come to celebrate. And the neat thing is there are actually doves there. Um, I suppose somebody brought them, but it kind of freaks you out. You're like, wow, this is like the dove. And here it is where Jesus was. And then we met these people. This was probably the most touching moment of the entire trip for me because these folks do not speak whatever language I speak. I would say English, but, you know, it's really Oklahoman. Uh, but these folks speak something out of Europe. And this young girl comes in with, I'm, I'm guessing, her mom and dad or her, her mom and pastor or sponsors. I don't know. But you could tell exactly what was about to happen. And the Spirit of God fell on this young woman. Look how happy she is. I mean, just, I mean, it was moving. We were all in tears just watching this happen. It was just the three of them. They got the little gowns and went down in the river. Um, and the thing is, you know, of course, when you're baptized, you're never baptized alone. It's always in community. I mean, it was just powerful. You know, beyond words. You don't, you don't need words, friends, uh, to watch God move. I mean, we knew exactly what was going on there. That young woman being made new, given life in Jesus Christ in his name, the Spirit descending upon her like a dove. It was a beautiful, beautiful thing. And so the scripture continues. It says, and at once after Jesus was baptized, the same spirit, the Holy Spirit, that didn't just leave him there. Uh, it was a wonderful time when he was baptized. But no, it pushed Jesus out into the wild. And for 40 wilderness days and nights, he was tested by Satan. And wild animals were his companions and angels took care of him. And I always wondered, what would that wild animal look like? What actually is out there? Well, it looks like that. When, when, we, when we drove in the... Um, in, in these jeeps way out into the wilderness we actually came across this guy he's just sitting there just just looking at us you know i don't know if that's what the scripture meant but that was the wild beast that we saw uh just a donkey uh hanging out in the middle of nowhere and you just see how rocky it is 
I just so nothing, nothing there. So Jesus goes out into the wilderness, and, and, and Satan tests him. And in Mark, there's no big, long temptation story. It just says that he was tested. Uh, and, of course, Jesus passes the, all those tests uh, by the word of God. He's faithful, lives a perfect life um, all the way to the end, to the cross. So uh, the story continues. It says, after John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee, back up um, to where um, he preached. And he preached the message of God. And this is what he said. Friends, time's up. See, whenever Jesus shows up, time's up because Jesus is heaven itself. Jesus is God himself. And so anything that God wants to have done is done. That's what heaven is, is when God's will is done. That's why we pray it in the Lord's Prayer. He says, God's kingdom is here. Change your life. It's not about mental ascent. It's not about feeling good or feeling bad. It's about changing your life to live like Jesus lives. And believe the message, this message of goodness and kindness and mercy for all people for all time. And passing along the beach of Lake Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew uh, net fishing. Okay, they, they, uh, they had these nets and they had weights around the ends of them. They would have to throw them out and then they would have to gather them up and pull them up. It was, it was really laborious kind of work. And so he sees them doing this, their regular work, and he says, Hey, come with me. I'll make a new kind of fisherman out of you. Instead of catching men and women, let's catch, and uh, I want you to do that instead of perch and bass. And they didn't ask questions. They dropped their nets and followed. It was the just the most amazing chance of their lifetime to be able to go with Jesus. And a dozen yards or so down the beach, he saw the brothers, James and John, Zebedee's sons, and they were in the boat mending their fishnets, right? Because if you throw it out and you catch it on a rock, it breaks. You've got to mend it. It was a very hard, hard life. And friends, even in late April, early May when we were there, it's hot. I mean, it is hot, hard work out there. And right off, you know, Jesus makes the same offer to them, the same offer he makes to you tonight. Come with me, follow me, have new life. And immediately they left their father Zebedee, the boat, and the hired hands, and they followed. Now, I have a romanticized notion of the Sea of Galilee, and I love it, and I know why Jesus would love it. It looked uh, like this when we were there. This is uh, looking at it Tiberius, from Tiberius, uh, which is just a little south of Capernaum. Um, and this is at sunset. I mean, you see how beautiful that is, looking out? Um, and then you would see people out on these little, you know, these boat cruises in the evening, and uh, really beautiful. Um, there we are uh, in Tiberius. Uh, having time, and you can see it's sort of a tourist place. I mean, so you love it. It's beautiful in the evenings, and uh, and you get to look out over the lake and into the mountains, and it's it's really quite picturesque. Um, but the thing is, in Jesus' day, it wasn't really all built up like that, uh, and the boat wasn't that big. Uh, it wasn't the Titanic. Let me say that. But I did feel like the king of the world. But um, so we're just having some fun there. The boat was more like that. Right, it wasn't that big. That when Jesus was in a boat, he was probably in a boat about that size. And what's really neat is you can actually go see a boat that they found, and they have carbon dated that thing to 2,000 years ago. It might actually be the boat that Jesus was in. I mean, it's the same, exact same years that Jesus was alive. You can go and see it. They recreated it. They found it in, in a dig they were doing, and they put it together, and you can go see it. They call it the Jesus boat. But you can see that boat's not that big. Um, it's... It's only about the size of that blue boat. And so even today, uh, people fish the same way Jesus did 2,000 years later with nets, with weights around the ends, and they throw it, and then they gather it all up, and uh, he threw it out on one side, and he didn't catch anything. And, and, and then we thought it was going to be really cool, and he says, well, let me try the other side. Maybe Jesus wants me to throw it on the other side. So he does. He caught nothing. It was a lot of buildup for nothing, if you know that story. Um, but it was neat, you know, to just see the, the same way that Jesus fished. They still do that today. And so this lake uh, is roughly 12 miles long and 8 miles across. Uh, it's not huge, but uh, it's big enough. Big enough. 
And so from there, um, if you go to point three, Mark 1, 21 to 28, they, they go from there and they go up to Capernaum, which is just a little north. And, and they go to the synagogue. Now, a synagogue is really just a gathering place for the Jews. I mean, it's, of course, it's a place of worship, but it's not like the temple exactly. The temple was much, much bigger. Uh, the synagogue that we visited uh, would fit well in your two sections. Um, it's not even as big as the sanctuary, uh, the synagogue that we went to for the whole town of Capernaum, because Capernaum's not a big town. Uh, it's, it's just not that big. So then they entered Capernaum, and when the Sabbath arrived, Jesus lost no time in getting to the meeting place, meaning the synagogue, it's synonymous, and he spent the day there teaching, and they were surprised at his teaching, so forthright, so confident, not quibbling and quoting like the religion scholars. And suddenly, while they were still in the meeting place, he was interrupted by a man who was deeply disturbed and yelling out, What business do you have here with us, Jesus? Nazarene, I know what you're up to. You're the Holy One of God, and you've come to destroy us. Of course, this man is not in his right mind. Um, and, and when that happened in Jesus' day, they didn't really know what to do when the sort of the pieces of medical information stopped. They um, basically assumed that there were other spirits, demons. Uh, we could spend a couple of weeks talking about that and multiple personality disorder and schizophrenia and bipolar and sort of what happens and why and how trauma occurs and, and mental illness, and we could spend a lot of time there. Uh, but for tonight, uh, let's just say this. Jesus uh, looks at him, not meaning the, the boy, but actually looking at the spirit, that thing coming out of him. And he says this to the spirit, not to the young man. Quiet, get out of him. And the afflicting spirit threw the man into spasms, protesting loudly, and got out. Because see, here's the thing. Where Jesus is, everybody else yields to him because he's God himself. Even the spirits of the world. Nothing can stand in the presence of God unless God allows it. And so he goes out. What's going on here? A new teaching that does what it says. Jesus says for a spirit to leave and he leaves. Jesus heals a man in a few chapters uh, in just a few verses later with leprosy and he's healed. He shuts up the defiling demonic spirit and sends them packing. News of this traveled fast and was soon all over the Galilee. Well, of course. The Galilee would basically be around, about the size of Edmund. That kind of news travels fast. Everybody wanted a piece of that. And so that, that's what happens. So this happens in what becomes Jesus' hometown. This is where uh, Jesus hangs out. This is Capernaum, um, one of the ways that folks um, spell that. Um, and in Capernaum, uh, there's this little synagogue. And so you can actually, this, is, this was crazy to us. You know how if you go to Guthrie and there's uh, like the Frontier Museum and there's something from the 1800s and like you're not allowed to touch it, it's behind glass. Um, in Israel, you can walk uh, something that's... Uh, 1700 years old and touch it like they don't even care it's like okay go ahead touch it. it's fine this is the synagogue uh, that was rebuilt on top of the exact synagogue that jesus uh, taught in uh, this would have been built um, in the 300s you know that because if it's like white limestone kind of stuff uh, it's, it's not native to that area uh, in jesus day it would have all been black uh, volcanic rock and, and we'll see that in just a second um, but here i am Chantel uh, took the photo for me and uh, just right here, I mean, Jesus could have been in that exact spot teaching. It was a very holy, incredible moment uh, to be there. Um, so, uh, Adam Hamilton uh, took a group earlier with a whole videographer, cinematography crew. Um, and so, he's going to show you some things uh, that I couldn't really do with my iPhone. So, let's take a look at that. 
you get the sense of, you, you feel like you're walking into the store. You imagine the synagogue as it was in Jesus' day, and Jesus standing in the middle of the crowds who would have been seated on three sides, and, and the women seated in the balcony above, and him preaching to them and teaching them, and then the, the sick coming, and him healing them there, and him alienating the religious leader. You'll notice that the stone is black. It's black basalt stone from the volcanoes that erupted four million years ago in the area. The lava flows formed the Sea of Galilee. And everywhere you look, this black stone, all of the towns and villages around the Sea of Galilee were formed of the same stone. You see the olive presses that were here and the millstones that were here. So we know the town was a place where olives were pressed, where, uh, where grain was milled, where uh, we know the houses. Uh, this white limestone was actually imported. And so right there, you can see on the bottom, there's that black stone right where Jesus' synagogue would have been. And the thing that's hard for us to get our minds around in Edmond, you know, if something doesn't work out, we move a couple miles and we build something else. In ancient times, you would never rebuild a foundation. Right? I mean, if somebody had put in the years and years and years it took to lay that down with stone by manual labor, you're not giving that up. So you build exactly on top of what was there before. It's also sort of a political way to go, and I'm on top of you. Right? I'm, I own you. It was, it was the way they did that. And so you would have civilization on top of civilization on top of civilization in the exact same spots, uh, which makes it kind of tricky to, to hear you know, the history of it because you're like, okay, so what happened here? And like, well, when here? Like in the 300s or in Jesus' time or in 150 before, at 6,000 before. So that, that can be sort of overwhelming. Um, but this is um, the synagogue that was built, rebuilt um, in the 300s right on top of the synagogue um, to the, basically the same dimensions of where Jesus uh, would have been preaching um, some of his very first sermons and where this young man uh, and, the, and the spirits knew that Jesus alone was the one that could heal him, who could set him free, who could change his life. Now, in um, the Gospel of Mark, uh, what we find that Mark says immediately, uh, Jesus leaves um, the synagogue and goes to Peter's house. Now, from where this is taken, I'm basically standing at the edge of the synagogue. Uh, and what you're looking at um, might be 30 yards, maybe, um, of sort of leftovers of the houses during Jesus' time there at Capernaum. And at the very far end, uh, you can see what is now a church built on top of St. Peter's house. And so let's go to the story. It says, directly on leaving the meeting place, meaning the synagogue, they came to Simon and Andrew's house. That's because when I'm here, um, the, Peter's house is about where the Jeskies are sitting. Okay, so, I mean, when he says immediately, he means immediately. I mean, you can just kind of see the, the throw. There's the synagogue, and then there's Peter's house. It's just not very far at all. Um, and so they come to the house, and James and John, and Simon's mother-in-law was sick in bed, burning up with fever. And they told Jesus, and he went to her, took her hand, and raised her up. And no sooner had the fever left than she was fixing dinner for them. Now, that's a good, thankful lady. That's good. And it also is a good reminder for us, friends, if Jesus heals you from something... We need to do something about that. We ought to share in the celebration of that. Uh, we ought not always be the person that needs healing. I mean, we're supposed to be healing so then we can go out and serve and help others. So that evening after the sun was down, they brought sick and evil afflicted people to him and the whole city lined up out his door. Now you can imagine if the synagogue is just, you know, from here uh, to the doorway um, and they know that Jesus has just healed the guy. Now he's at St. Peter's house and he's living uh, with Simon Peter um, and Andrew and maybe even James and John from time to time and his mother-in-law. These are not boys. These are grown men with families. He has a mother-in-law. He has wife, his kids. And, and the thing is, um, the house of St. Peter is right there. And then what they did, because it was St. Peter, they built a, they built a church uh, on top of it. Now you'll notice that the floor plan that there's eight sides to this church that they build on top of St. Peter's house and in the middle was the house. 
Um, and then they built the church around it in the 300s. And then they built another one on top of, of that one. So this is sort of the remains of that. And then you can sort of see that there's a church above that. Now, this was a tiny house, friends. Okay? Just, just tiny. It was about 625 square feet. Uh, for all those adults and kids and wives. and I mean, they are just packed in there. And so it really was a neat place to visit. Um, just So if you go up into where this is now a Roman Catholic church, um, you can look and, and it's a, there's a glass floor and you can look down uh, inside and you can actually see right where uh, Jesus and Peter and the disciples would have lived and talked and healed people. It was really a beautiful uh, thing. You can go and, and you get a sense that you worship not just... Um, today, but you really are worshiping with all the people that have ever gone uh, before you. Uh, here's another quick little video. And, and they built it on top. You can still see the ruins below, and it was designed to protect the ruins, but also to invite you into that first century church to worship. So when you go inside, there's a glass floor, and you can see the house of Simon and Jesus below, below the glass floor, and when you worship there, you're joining with all those Christians who worship back in the first century in that house. Now, I, w- I want you to see what happens with Jesus uh, he's healed this guy, and he starts to heal some more people, and then some more people, and then some more people. And so the, the scripture says this, says, while it was still night, way before dawn, Jesus got up and he goes out to a secluded spot and prayed. Not in the area where he has been, but outside of town. And Simon and those with him, they go looking for Jesus. And they find Jesus. You know what they say to him? Hey, Jesus, everybody's looking for you. Can you imagine? He's been healing All day, all night, person after person after person. He can't take it another minute. In the middle of the night, he escapes to try to have some peace, to try to pray, to try to, you know, kind of recalibrate and get going. And the disciples find him. I'm sure they think they're helping. They're not helping. Right? But listen to how beautiful and wonderful Jesus is. He says, well, let's go to the rest of the villages so I can preach there also. This is why I've come. And so he does. He goes out and he preaches and he heals and he helps. And after a few days, Jesus returns then to Capernaum. And word got around that he was back home, meaning Peter's house. And a crowd gathered there, and they were jamming the entrance so no one could get in or out. And he was teaching the word and just kept cramming in around him, cramming in around him. And then there are these four guys, and, and there's a paraplegic on a stretcher. And these guys, I don't know how they did it, but they basically climb up on the side of the house, and they carry this guy. And Jesus is inside teaching in the living room in this tiny little house, right? This tiny little 625-square-foot you know, domicile. And you can almost see Jesus like preaching and teaching and helping and healing. And then just like dust and thatch and stuff just starts falling on him. Like, what is going on? And these guys are lowering their friend down in front of Jesus because they can't get in the house. Because it's crowded on every side. And, and, and you know, you just wonder what Jesus is thinking. Like, are you kidding me? I mean, they're tearing up my roof. I mean, what would you do if somebody was breaking and entering your house through your roof while you're trying to watch TV? I mean, what's going through your mind? I don't know exactly what's going through Jesus' mind. I I would have been like, what is going on? But look what the scripture says uh, happens with Jesus. He wasn't upset with them. He was impressed. He was impressed by their bold belief. And Jesus said to the paraplegic, son, I forgive your sins. I forgive your sins. Now, of course, the religious people, they don't like it. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they don't like this one bit. And they started whispering among themselves. He said, well, he can't talk that way. That's blasphemy. God and only God can forgive sins. And that's exactly right. That's who Jesus is. Jesus knew right away what they were thinking. And he said, why are you so skeptical? Which is simpler to say to the paraplegic, I forgive your sins? Or say, get up, take your stretcher, start walking. Well, just so it's clear that I am the Son of Man, Son of God. It's a name that Jesus used for himself. And authorized to do either or both. Jesus looks at the paraplegic. And he says, get up. 
pick up your stretcher and go home. And he did. That is awesome. That's who Jesus is. He says, get up. And he grabbed a stretcher and he walked out with everyone there watching and they rubbed their eyes incredulous and then they praised God saying, we've never seen anything like this. Never seen anything like this. And that is who Jesus is. He, he does things we've never seen before. We've just never seen it. Now, what do we learn from this story? Well, friends, healing, yours, mine, most healing in this life, it requires others to help. It requires friends. N- notice that Jesus doesn't say anything about the faith of the man on the stretcher. He's impressed by the friends. He's impressed that there are four guys who are willing to break into somebody's house to try to get their friend to walk again, to try to help them. That's, those are good friends. So let me ask you, who are your stretcher bearers? Do you have four people in your life that you can count on, that you can call at four in the morning? No matter what's going on, that you can actually reach out to who will help carry you to a place of healing? Or, or, or flip it around. Uh, what person does the Holy Spirit place on your heart to help? Who, who stretcher bearer uh, may you be? Does the Lord bring somebody to mind? You see, what stretcher bearers do is they bring their friends to Jesus, even when it's difficult, even if they have to scale a wall, even if they have to break through a roof. That's what friends do. That's what stretcher bearers do. So the scriptures go on in in Mark 2 and and continues to tell the wonderful stories of Jesus. And Jesus goes and he walks alongside the lake. And again, a crowd comes to him and he taught them. Strolling along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, at his work collecting taxes. Now, I'd remind you, tax collectors were hated because they were working for Rome, the occupiers of the land. And Jesus says even to him, come along, come along with me, follow me. And so what we find here, friends, is that scholars believe that five, certainly, there's, right? Peter, James, John, Andrew, and now the one who we'll know is Matthew, right? All of them come right from this little tiny town around Capernaum. Now, some scholars believe that seven of the 12 disciples all come from this, this area. Uh, and these aren't poor guys. These aren't, um, you know, great religious scholars. But they're also uh, not people that are homeless or jobless by any stretch. I mean, they're normal, work-a-day, everyday kind of people like you and me. And so uh, look what happens after Jesus reaches out to this tax collector. It says, later, Jesus and his disciples, they were at home, Peter's house, right there by the synagogue. And they were having supper with a collection of disreputable guests. Doesn't, Doesn't that sound weird that Jesus would sit down with disreputable guests? Would you consider yourself a disreputable guest? I don't know. When is the last time you hosted a dinner for disreputable guests? See, that's what Jesus did. My hunch is that not a lot of us have have hosted a, a dinner for disreputable guests with the hope that more than a few of them would become followers of Jesus. But that's exactly what Jesus did. They threw a party. They threw a Matthew party. And unlikely as it seems, the scripture says, more than a few of them started to follow Jesus. Now again, of course, the religious folks, woo, they were not happy with this. They lit into his disciples. What kind of example is this, acting cozy with the riffraff? And Jesus, overhearing, shot back, who needs a doctor? It's a good question. Who needs a doctor, the healthy or the sick? I'm here inviting the sin sick, not the spiritually fit. And friends, that's why we start every service here. Good morning or good evening, saints. Good morning or good evening, sinners.
Friends, we are both. We are in need of a Savior. We need saving. We need help. We need to be broken so that we can enter into the kingdom of God. We need to understand that we have a need, and that requires humility. Who needs a doctor, the healthy or the sick? I invite you to pray this prayer with me um, as we move into our time of response. Almighty God, we pray that we may be comforted in our suffering and made whole. When we are afraid, give us courage. When we feel weak, grant us your strength. When we are afflicted, afford us patience. When we are lost, offer us hope. When we see others alone, move us to their side. When death comes, open your arms to receive us. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.